How could an independent F1 team possibly dream of fighting for the World Championship? It's unthinkable today, but two decades ago it happened when Jordan came as close as it ever would to the big prize. We're of course talking about the 1999 F1 season where after Michael Schumacher broke his leg at Silverstone, Mika Hakkinen eventually fended off Ferrari's Eddie Irvine and Jordan's Heinz Held Frentzen to win his second world championship. Welcome to the latest episode of Bring Back V10s, the trip back into F1's past brought to you by The Race. We're approaching the halfway stage of our first series, so please remember to get in touch with at We Are The Race on social media to let us know what you think of the podcast so far and what you'd like us to talk about in our series finale and make sure you use the hashtag Bring Back V10s. So joining me to look at Jordan's finest hour are Matt Beer and Ed Straw back from last week's Damon Hill 1997 Hungry episode. Thanks for coming back, gentlemen, and we'll crack straight on with our traditional opening question, which is when you think of Jordan's 1999 season, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? And you're not allowed to say Damon Hill being rubbish. Uh, a yellow car retiring from the race lead in a slightly strange way. <laughs> Mine's very, very similar. I just the image of the car stopped where it was by the first corner. That that if you mention Jordan ninety nine, that's just the the thing that leaps to mind. Uh, I don't know. It's just seared on the brain, I guess. Yeah, and that's of course when Frentzen broke down at the Nurburgring when, and that was really when this this championship dream shattered. But we'll come back to that shortly. Nineteen ninety nine, an amazing season in Formula One, and there'll be so many more times in the future of bring back V tens where we revisit this season and some of the things. That went on but towards the end of the season is where we're focused today because that's when we really everyone started to get the feeling that actually Jordan could pull off a championship ups, upset here and that feels remarkable now to look back that this team had its peak for quite a short period but legitimately it was fighting for a championship now we know that the team won its first race at the end of 1998 with Damon Hill at Spa and in 99 uh, Mike Gascoigne had taken over from our own Gary Anderson at the team. And Gascoigne has said that really the 199 was a, mechanically an evolution of the old car with a new aero package put on it. That's what he told Motorsport magazine in a feature a few years ago. So, Matt, how good do you think the 99 Jordan was? It was it was third in the Constructors' Championship, which was the only time Jordan finished that high. And that was when it had Hill not really scoring any points in the other car. So was this a legitimate championship contending car? No, but it was probably Jordan's best overall. Uh, I would say it was the fourth fastest car that season. I think Stewart had a spectacularly fast car for much of that year, but it did spend quite a lot of its time on fire or with smoke billowing out of the back. Um, but no, the Jordan was quick enough to, for Frentzen to put it on the front row at Monza, where he, um, where he won when Hakkinen spun out. And um, and to finish, you know, like you say, third with a, with just really one driver scoring, it was clearly faster than the Williams. But as we're as we're bound to discuss quite a lot in the rest of the podcast, a lot of its closeness to the front in points terms was from McLaren and Ferrari getting things um, embarrassingly wrong. And of course, Jordan running it pretty well. If you look purely at the numbers, it just sneaks in as the third fastest based on the absolute fastest uh, pace, just ahead of the Stewart. But the Stewart had a lot of reliability uh, problems during the season, so uh, didn't come together that well. And I think they they done some work with with the weight and getting the centre of gravity down a little bit lower. So I think it was one of those ones, as well as doing the aero changes, they did a little bit of top and tailing of some of the work they'd done in 98, which of course had started with Gary Anderson, the race's own Gary Anderson, uh, doing the Jordan 198 originally. But then Mike Gascoigne, who's technical director, really kind of running with that and 
improving uh, significantly what the car could do. So it's quite a good, usable, solidly run car that that was never kind of the absolute best car, but it was close enough for when circumstances came into play, they they were able to to do something. Yeah, and circumstances came into play a lot in 99. Now, probably illustrating some of the points you've made there, Frentzen's average qualifying position for the season was 5.3, so fifth, basically, which very much suggests best of the rest behind the four cars from McLaren and Ferrari if all was was normal. And the first win that Jordan took earlier in that year was opportunistic. It was the French Grand Prix, a famous wet race that will get its own episode in the future. So that's why we're not really focusing on it today. But I think illustrating some of the points you made there, when Frentzen wins that race, he's not that far off in the championship, but nobody's talking about Jordan as a championship threat. And when Schumacher breaks his leg at Silverstone, there's still no talk that this could open up a championship opportunity for Jordan. Frentzen was incredibly consistent through that season. So his average grid position was, let's say, fifth. If you ignore the races he didn't finish, when he did finish, his average position was 3.2. So he was he was better on Sundays than Saturdays, you could say. And of course, as you referenced, Matt, at Monza, Jordan got its first and what would turn out to be its only proper dry weather win. And this race is also memorable for Mika Hakkinen spinning out of the lead, wandering off into the trees to have a cry and getting caught by a helicopter-mounted television camera. Uh, but after that retirement, Ron Dennis and McLaren said that Hakkinen made the mistake because he was driving so far inside his limits. Jordan had a different theory on that because they believe that they were putting pressure on Hakkinen. Frentzen was running second in that opening stint, having qualified on the front row, and although the gap was up to around eight seconds, Frentzen started taking a little bit of time out of Hakkinen. And so Jordan's theory is that Hakkinen tried to respond to that uh, because McLaren wanted him to keep a gap. And then he made the mistake. We know, Ed, that Jordan uh, had a big fuel tank. In fact, one of the reasons they were able to win in France was because of the big fuel tank. But before we get onto Jordan... Let's talk about Hakkinen because Monza's a very famous error, but he'd also gone off in Ferrari country at Imola earlier in the year as well. So if we're looking at reasons that Jordan were able to have this perfect storm of a championship charge in 99, do we have to look at perhaps Hakkinen being a bit more fragile this year than he was the year before? It certainly played its part, particularly in, in races in Italy. Uh, as, as you've alluded to, obviously Monza, he went down to first gear rather than second gear of the first chicane, rears locked, off he spun. Uh, he took responsibility for that that mistake. Uh, but at the time, I mean, coming back to that, that line Ron Dennis said about the fact that Hakkinen was cruising, he was, given, he was being given the pushboard. And in that race, they were concerned about this being one of those races where those running longer could then really uh, kind of chew up, chew up lap time because obviously you've still got healthy tyres, shall we say, and then you've got uh, very little fuel. Uh, Austria, I think, was the race that really got inside McLaren's heads on this one because there, David Coulthard, having punted uh, Hakkinen into a spin, uh, was leading. I think he had about 10 seconds on Irvin and then he made his last stop five laps earlier and Irvin was taking like 1.8 seconds a lap out of him and then won the race as a result of that offset. But I think they vastly overestimated what was happening at Monza. If you if you watch that race with timing, as I've I've done quite recently, you don't see any of those offsets with people who are who are running a bit longer. So, actually, I think they were too worried. But yeah, pushing Hakkinen on, there was a lot. I think collectively there are a lot of weaknesses from McLaren 
that year, Hakkinen also lost a lot of a lot of uh, points through no fault of his own, through being hit by DC in Austria. The tire went at uh, uh, Hockenheim, so it, it's it's strange one. I think Hakkinen was a little bit fragile at times, and he did admit at the start of the season he struggled to kind of pick himself up to go for the championship again. But whatever happens, that 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 Hakkinen McLaren combination was not scoring the points that it really should have done. So I, I tend towards uh, Eddie Jordan's interpretation of events, and it was those shortcomings that helped Jordan, you know, at best the third best package to get in the hunt. I think Hakkinen was definitely fragile in, to, a, to a degree through both his championship seasons, then into 2000 as well. But I do think a lot of that fragility came from the fact that really he he should have been walking those two championships, and for reasons quite often not his fault at all he wasn't you know if you look at the stats he had 20 pole positions across his two championship seasons so pole for more than half the races the most poles anybody else got was six the mclaren was the fastest car on pure pace at the the, the majority of races across those two years hackland was the faster mclaren driver and through the car braking through his teammate whacking into him you know for sometimes for his own mistakes but more often than not for something out of his hands what should have been straightforward championships were becoming very high pressure and stressful. And when you had uh, people as relentless as Schumacher and Ferrari, or as relentless as Ferrari without Schumacher still turned out to be in the second half of 99, yeah, that was getting inside his head. And actually, Hackman has admitted the Monza mistake was a bit of a wake-up call that they needed to really focus and not leave anything on the table. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think, you know, you mentioned Austria there, Ed. I- McLaren shouldn't have read too much into that because that was just a bad day at the office for David Coulthard. Yes, he wiped his teammate out and then didn't drive very well after that. So he sort of handed the race to Irvine a while. Exactly, exactly what he said in the post-race press conference, pretty much what you just said there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so I have no problem uh, taking that swipe at him because he took, he gave it to himself at the same time. Eddie Jordan obviously loved the idea of getting under the skin of, of Ron Dennis. Now, they, they had a better relationship, I think, behind the scenes than maybe the one they, they played out in public. And and Eddie Jordan loved playing up to that. And after Frentzen wins at Monza, uh, Jordan says, right now I'd have my money on Frentzen before I would Hackenham. The McLarens have the speed, which is what Matt was talking about, but either the team or the driver has screwed up on too many occasions there is a litany of failure and they should have won the championship by 50 points and it should be all over by now. But they have another contender in the shape of Heinz Harold, which nobody expected. Ron is a great competitor. I admire the guy and I think his team is sensational. But if I had a team as good as that and I would not won the world championship by now, I would be sick. And Dennis probably was feeling like that by this point because I think... You've got to think that Schumacher would have beaten this fragile McLaren-Hackinen partnership to the 99 title, but McLaren kind of got away with that one with Schumacher not being a factor in the second half of the year. Now, Jordan has talked about how he used to deal with Ron. Um, You know, Eddie loves giving an interview and he's written an interesting book as well. And uh, he said that uh, the biggest compliment Ron ever paid him was after Monza when he said to Eddie... At least you've won one race by merit because, of course, at that point, Spa 98 and France 99 were both crazy rain hit races where Jordan did a very good job. You know, he deserved those wins on the day. So we head to the Nürburgring. And at this point, Frentzen is 10 points behind Hacken and Irvine with three races to go. And this is back when we were only 10 points for a win. Um, Irvine, who uh, wasn't very good at Monza, I think we can we can all agree. Um he then talks about Frentzen in an Irish newspaper column and he says, 
In theory, Frentzen's win puts him in the running along with me and Mika. But the truth is, he is a red herring. Much as I respect what my old boss, Eddie Jordan, has done with his team, Heinz Harold's victory was down to the fact that this track suited their car. It will all come down to a scrap between me and Hackenham. So, Matt, if we think back to 1999, after the Monza win, did you think that Frentzen was a championship contender now? Looking at what Irvine said there, Jordan had been fast at other high-speed tracks such as Hockenheim and Spa before we got to Monza. So perhaps was it a credible theory that it was just a car that was good on that type of circuit? Well, I think at that point, 20 years ago, 21 years ago, the uh, wildly optimistic Frentzen fan part of me that still hadn't quite given up from 97 um, definitely thought, yes, he was a contender, but realistically... It was more because of the fragility of McLaren and the fact that Jordan by that time was a, was looking like a serious second best package. You know, Irvine's championship bid was largely based on an excellent fortnight across Austria and Germany when he was very impressive in the way he first stepped up with Schumacher gone. But as soon as things started to get more difficult for Ferrari, Irvine's results were absolutely nosediving and the Jordan looked like the car that was going to be there to pick up the pieces, almost regardless of the track. So... Yeah, 10, point, 10 points with three races to go was still a very tough ask for not the fastest car up against Hacken and the McLaren. But Jordan had been best of the rest or nearly best of the rest everywhere. Hacken and the McLaren were still shipping points. Irvine and Ferrari looked completely all at sea by that time. So, yeah, Frentzen was a solid long shot. I think solid long shot is about uh, as good as it would have been. The, the car still wasn't the equal of the of the, the McLaren, certainly over kind of an average circuit, shall we say. I can't really tell looking back. I think I was more concerned with Damon Hill underperforming as a Damon Hill fan at the time. Uh, obviously, this was before my journalistic career started. Obviously, in retrospect, he was performing dreadfully and Frentzen was being mighty. But it was still, if you look at the circumstances going into Monza, it was still a long shot because even if Monza was going to be good, they still had a number of tracks where there's no real reason to expect them to be good, including Nürburgring, actually. Yeah, I think uh, no one else was paying any attention to Damon Hill by this point of 99, Ed. But... Um... It, it, a very quick note, in fairness to uh, Eddie Irvine, he, he has said that he felt that Ferrari switched the development off on the 99 car um, not long after Schumacher broke his leg. And then towards the end of the season, a lot of the 2000 wind tunnel work had thrown up some bits that they could put on the 99 car towards the end of the season. So that's why there was maybe a little revival of Ferrari's fortunes. But certainly at this point, Ferrari and Irvine weren't looking massively like a factor, um, Eddie Jordan Matt, seemed to be looking at it the same way you put it. Um, he said that, you know, they were still a long shot. Um, he felt that the, the dry weather win proved once and for all that the Jordan 199 was a serious contender. Um, in public, he's still saying, yes, we're the outsider. Um, but he also said at the start of the season, if we'd been told we'd be fighting for the title, or if we'd said we were fighting for the title, we would have been laughed at. So just to be where we are is fantastic. But when we get to the Nürburgring, Jordan brings some updates that they've tested at Magni Core. Um, strange place to test uh, new parts, if you ask me. Um, and they go there actually thinking, right, we can we can show some dry weather pace here. And Frentzen has a, a sort of disrupted weekend. And even qualifying is, uh, is a stressful session where they're not entirely sure he's going to get out for another run at the end. But he goes out at the end and he puts the car on pole. And this was the point for me where I thought, hang on a minute, this could really happen now. Jordan have properly, properly got their act together. And Eddie Jordan says that actually what Frentzen did that day under that amount of pressure was a measure of where he was at and where he was performing 
in 99. So, Ed, do we think that was this the peak of Frentzen's Formula One career? You know, he had the time at Williams where it didn't work out for whatever reason. But once he'd been released from those Williams shackles, he's at Jordan, a completely different environment. And by this point, he's he's absolutely he's on fire, isn't he? And there's an interesting note that we've seen in some interviews and recently on social media, actually, from Mike Gascoigne, where he said in 99, Frentzen just turned up and drove the car. And he actually struggled after that because he got too involved with trying to engineer it. So would you say this was absolute peak Frentzen at the end of 99? Yeah, you'd probably have to say that because he's a curious driver, Frentzen, a huge amount of pace and ability. And we saw some wonderful performances with, with Sauber in his early years in Formula One. At Williams, his season in 97, when he only won one race alongside Jacques Villeneuve, was probably better than it looked. He had some misfortune as well, but he also had some areas where he, he wasn't his best. So he, I, I always felt he was a driver who perhaps was a little bit mentally fragile and needed to kind of get that momentum and get onto a bit of a crest of a wave to really perform at his absolute best. And when that happened, he was he was brilliant. Um, and in fact, we did see later years with Jordan, he kind of declined to the point where he got uh, ousted mid-season uh, in, in the end. Uh, so, yeah, curious. I would say, if you want to pick a peak, probably actually Nürburgring qualifying is, is the absolute peak to go for because I don't think he really had any business being on pole position. It was a tricky and odd qualifying session. So again, there are a few circumstances that helped create the opportunity, but he'd had a difficult session. He just went out and nailed it uh, right at the end of the session. They did kind of a, a quick racing pit stop, didn't they, to get him uh, turned around and back out on the soft uh, soft tyres to, to give it a go. So the fact that in the race he had McLarens all over him first Hacken and then Coulthard in the dry phase of the race uh, before he, he made his stop tells us that he wasn't really supposed to be on pole position I think we have to put that down to Frentzen absolutely nailing it we know he you know he was the guy who could beat Schumacher wasn't he that's was what he was before he came into Formula One in his early years with Sauber and I think we had moments where we saw that but he couldn't string it together for consistent periods and probably 99 as a whole was the point where he came closest to consistently delivering the driver uh, performances that people said he did have when he was considered that Schumacher beater. Now, Matt, last week in our Hungry 97 episode, you said that you had a lot of theories about Frentzen from 97 that when you went and looked back at them, you went, actually, no, he wasn't as good as I thought he was at the time. But is this the period of his F1 career where everything you've gone back and looked at and you thought, Oh no, he really was that good. He was better, <laughs> possibly. No, I, I've always thought of um, '99 as, as the moment Frentzen showed what his whole career probably should have been. Um, there, there's a slight, there's a, there was a slight sketchiness to Frentzen throughout his career. Like, like you said, Ed, he was billed as the Schumacher beater, but there's that famous picture when he was in the Mercedes Junior program of him, Schumacher, and Wendlinger with Peter Sauber at an event, and everyone's wearing a smart smart suit and tie and friends in the terrible jumper and it's a tiny thing but it's just a just a little hint of just not all the details being in place not having attention on all the things he absolutely needs to and you know the fact that Williams didn't work out for him Salba his stint his first stint there had so many promising days but also some disappointing ones as well and they get into this year at Jordan and he just he just comes across like someone who's free and relaxed and can bring all his talent out without all the things that were either complicating it for him or he was allowing to complicate for him in his own head. And 
I think that 24 hours at the Nürburgring was the absolute peak of his career. That was such a messy, not just session, but weekend. He missed a lot of practice running and then just goes out and then on a properly dry track at the end with a bit of extra fuel because they were trying to get as much running in as possible at the end. He puts in the fastest lap of the weekend up to that point, head to head with the two McLarens on the dry track. It, w- it was properly sublime. And yeah, definitely his F1 peak in that single lap, I'd say. He was perhaps a driver who was helped by the circumstance of going into a team with an evolutionary, well-sorted, proven car. He was undisputed number one because Damon Hill was going a season too far in his career. And I think probably that kind of unshackled him a little bit. And he didn't have to do too much work in terms of making the car good. And it, it probably was in that right window for him. Whereas someone like Schumacher was the guy who always made it work for him and was always there. Whereas Frentzen, I think, probably needed to be in that little narrow window for it to really work and him deliver his best. I'd, I'd argue your undisputed number one point, Ed, bearing in mind that end of 98, Hill was Jordan's first Grand Prix winner and was like Benson and Hedges' darling. And Frentzen comes in as a bit of a weird choice, um, having just you know discredited his career with his, with his Williams stint, really. But within one race, it's clear that Frentzen you know, is the team's best hope. Exactly. Number one status is decided by pace, isn't it? Yeah. He may have been signed as a as a good backup to Hill, but yeah, within about five seconds of the season starting, it was it was Frentzen's team, and that presumably helped him. Yeah, completely. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll do Damon Hill's nineteen ninety nine another time because uh, Damon's actually very good on talking about that, even if he can't quite work out why he was so slow. So we're on to race day. And this is the heartbreak that we talked about at the top of the episode. So we'll come back in a moment to the moment where Frentzen exits the pits and the car grinds to a halt. That haunting image that we talked about and the moment that this all goes up in... uh, It wasn't actual smoke, was it? There wasn't any smoke, but the, the title chances went up in smoke. Now at the time, it was a very mysterious failure and Jordan were very secretive about what had gone on. But in the years that have passed since the incident, we've we've learned a bit about what went on that day. And there were a few teams, I think, in 1999 who were finding clever ways to get around the ban on driver aids. And Jordan had um, effectively a, a legal, uh, through some loopholes, launch control system. But the the trick they had required the driver to manually disable it after the launch, otherwise the car would shut down. Now, this happened to both Jordans in this race. If you remember at the start of the race, um, Pedro Diniz ends up flipped upside down and his roll hoop is ripped off of his Sauber. And that's because he went over the back of, or he, he went upside down after an accident that was triggered by the same thing happening to Hill at the same point of the first two corners at Nürburgring. So Hill's car stops and then there's a multiple car accident and Diniz comes barreling in and flies over the back of possibly a Benetton. Um, But before we get on to Frentzen, Ed, let's just briefly talk about that incident because um, you said you've watched the race back quite recently and that's a very scary crash, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a horrendous uh, a horrendous accident. And as soon as you see the, uh, the the roll hoop being damaged like that, it's it's worrying for the driver because it's there to protect them. Obviously, um, looking back at some of the information, it was a it was a ninety five kilometer an hour impact initially on the on the roll hoop, which led to the, the main kind of structure. Uh, then failing, and then there were there's secondary structures in there, and there's the high cockpit sides that helped him. And actually, Pedro Diniz was in was in pretty good shape after this. He was uh, he was fine. He didn't have to miss a race, and he had a bruised shoulder and and knee. But it, it's a yeah, really really nasty accident for him. And it, 
I think it also, for those of us who were paying attention to German F3 at the time, there'd been an accident um, about uh, not not long before, in fact, where Vita van Ooyk, a Dutch driver, had, had flipped there. The role hoop had failed and he'd actually been paralysed. Um, so it had quite a few similarities being in the same place. So, yeah, a, a very fortunate situation for uh, Deniz. But there was a reason why they had secondary structures and other bits and pieces. So they weren't only relying on the, the top of the roll hoop to uh, to save the driver, but it could have been a whole lot worse. Yeah, that I kind mean, of accident. it looked like his, his head had been squashed. And, you know, it's a testament to where F1's safety was at that point that he was okay. And, and F1's come a long way since then as well. So I don't think we'd see a similar failure today so back to Frentzen who leads the first stint of the race and then he comes in for a pit stop and it's after his pit stop uh, that he he forgets to disable the mechanism that we're talking about but Eddie Jordan says that uh, Sam Michael who was Frentzen's race engineer at the time Eddie effectively pins some of the blame on him because uh, Jordan says in his book each time, without fail, Sam would say to Heinz, press cancel, press cancel, as a reminder. On this occasion, he simply said, you've got 4.5 seconds on Ralph, bring it home first. And then Eddie says, no sooner had Sam said that than we heard Heinz reporting that the engine had cut out. It was the most sickening feeling to see the pictures of our car rolling to a halt. The rest of that race is absolutely crazy. It's wet, dry. Johnny Herbert ends up winning it for Stewart. And it's quite interesting. We, at the moment, we've got a lot of classic F1 races being shown on the F1 YouTube channel. And every time they announce the race that they're doing, they're getting bombarded with requests for Nürburgring 99. So we will do a separate episode on it another time, definitely. So we don't need to get too much into everything else that happened in the race. But with how crazy it went, and I think you've already hinted at this, Ed, can we assume that Frentzen would have won this race or was it too crazy to predict that given that Hakkinen and Irvine were you know, scrambling around at the end to try and get back into the points? I don't think we can assume it. What we can say is he was in the position to win the race. He just made his pit stop, obviously, hence uh, the, uh, the switch issue happened. But we were only a few laps away from, from the downpour coming that caused all sorts, of, uh, all sorts of chaos. However, having said that, he made his stop. He was ahead of Johnny Herbert. So if we take Johnny Herbert as the kind of fulcrum for the win, He's got position at that point, but then Herbert hadn't made his stop and was then able to come in for uh, wets initially. Then he made another stop for slicks. So there were a lot of curveballs being thrown at people, and you know mistakes were made and incidents happened uh, to, to all sorts of people. So you can't say he would have done, but what we can say is that he was in a good position. He he'd covered David Coulthard, who was uh, chasing him at the time. He pitted on the same lap. He pulled a few seconds on Ralph Schumacher, who was having a wonderful race in the Williams, in fact, really, really good performance. Um, but he had an advantage over him. So at the point he exits the race, he is in control. Whether he'd have stayed in control is a, is another matter. But he was a handy driver in, in mixed conditions. He was on good form. So there's 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 no reason to to say that it wouldn't have happened. But then again, something might have broken four laps later that that we'd never known about anyway. So so who can say when these things happen, you you, you just can't be sure. But yeah, he, he had the race that had happened to that point one, let's put it that way. And also, let's not forget that, you know, if anything, once it becomes a wet, dry race, that's Jordan territory based on this era of F1. Well, pre precisely. You look at the uh, the data set that was available. That, to win that race, you need to make the right tyre call at the right time, judge the weather right, and not make mistakes under pressure. Well, that's how Frentzen won at Manucor with and with Jordan's strategy as well. 
and you look at the first 30 laps of the race at the Nürburgring, and Frenzen and Jordan judge that first shower right. They don't make an unnecessary pit stop there. He resists pressure from three faster cars because Ralph was quicker at that point as well. Gets away with skipping over the chicane a couple of times, so a little bit cheekily the second time particularly. But everything that he needs to do to stay ahead and win the race, he'd already shown he could do in the first half of the race and at Manucor early in the year. So based on that, I'll say with absolute certainty that he definitely would have won. You can say that probably Ralph Schumacher was the driver in the place best in the race at that stage, best place to challenge him. And obviously, Ralph's challenge came unstuck. He would have won the race, uh, but he had the problem. So he would have been out of the way, <laughs> shall we say. So, yeah, it's, it's but it, it becomes a little bit of a crapshoot at that point. You know, he might have arrived because the, the rain was hitting at uneven points, wasn't it? At some points, it was absolutely cascading down. So for all we know, it might have started raining. He just hits a puddle uh, and, and off he goes and, uh, and forgotten about. So, uh, yeah. Who knows? Yeah, it's one of those great races where so many people could have won it, so many people threw it away or had bad luck. And uh, yeah, we'll come back to Ralph Schumacher in 99. I think he was driving really well by this point and uh, was on a real upward curve. But Matt, I think in the end, Hakkinen finishes fifth and uh, Irvine's out of the points. So was this a real, a massive let off for McLaren and Ferrari? Because they had a shambolic second half of the race as it was all going wrong. Maybe they were too cautious or too struck by fear of messing up the championship. But if Frentzen had kept going and had won this race, you know, he'd have made massive inroads again into Hacken and Irvine. So was this a, was this a real let off? Oh yeah, completely. I think you can see you can see this race as a kind of microcosm of all the missed opportunities that McLaren and Ferrari were generating throughout that season. Um, Top teams can flounder in crazy races. They're used to things following a quite carefully enacted plan. They're used to being able to rely on pace advantages. And suddenly when it's raining on six corners, but not on the other seven, and then it stops and then it snows or something, and then there's a car upside down with no roll hoop, that's not really top team territory in the same way as it might be for a dice rolling Jordan team or Stewart team on this occasion. And the the state of Ferrari in those pit stops, there's that comedic image of Eddie Irvine's car with three wheels on it and just no one really knowing where the fourth might be. Um, you know, if Frentzen had won the race, he'd have been equal on points with Irvine and um, uh, Hakkinen would have had one fewer, wouldn't he? Because Frentzen would have actually finished. So one point behind Hakkinen with two races to go. Obviously, the, the rest of the season didn't play out that well for Jordan, but at that point, it would have been an enormous upset and Jordan would have looked not like title favourite, but a totally legitimate contender because McLaren and Ferrari allowed it to be. Yeah, the momentum would have really been with Jordan by that point. And that Irvine pit stop, I think it still annoys me to this day. And there's a famous bit of Martin Brundle commentary, I think, where he says they're having a committee meeting, just stick a wheel on it and send him down the pit lane. And uh, I'm very quickly going to detour here because that race is, in a way, is responsible for me choosing a career in motorsport journalism because uh, I had an English project I had to do at the time, which was to write two newspaper articles one being balanced and one being biased. And I was thinking, what the hell am I going to do this about? And really wasn't sure. That race happened. And then I wrote my two reports. And my balanced one was uh, Stuart wins crazy, brilliant Grand Prix. Isn't F1 wonderful? And my biased one was uh, Ferrari throws it away. Ferrari shambles, blah, 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 slag them off. Um, so, yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't find it that difficult. I got an A. And I thought maybe I should keep doing this. And uh, here we are 21 years later talking about it again. Um, so thank you to the teacher that gave me an A. I thought your biased one would be, did Jacques Villeneuve uh, produce the best 10th place finished ever? 
Oh, his incredible drive. You know, he he you know he was the moral winner of that Grand Prix and every other race that he took part in. Thank you for reminding me that Jack Villeneuve was in that race. Yeah, even I didn't remember what happened to him. <laughs> I think I think he retired late on. Actually, had a clutch problem or something, so he was classified. But, but oh, I'm sure he retired because he was in a 99 BAR that was incapable of finishing a race. Uh, Ed, Matt mentioned there that Jordan's season petered out after this. Can we perhaps put that down to the disappointment of Nurburgring because? Frentzen was a bit rubbish at Sepang. He qualifies 14th, does race his way into the points and sets the second fastest lap of the race. Michael Schumacher was back at this point and was miles quicker than everybody. But do we think that Jordan's end of the season would have been different if there'd still been a championship on the line? Like, Did the bubble just burst at the Nürburgring? I think it's very tempting with a driver like Frentzen to put it down to that because we know, as we discussed, he had some mentally fragile moments and that was comfortably the worst qualifying performance of the season. Uh, 14th, he was never outside the top eight, I think, elsewhere. But Jordan was really struggling. It was new track, low grip, had a spinning qualifying when the headrest detached, had to switch to the T-car, which I don't think he'd driven. It didn't have the qualifying engine. The brake problems, the front left brake caliper wasn't working. Uh, qualifying. So it was only really right at the end of the session when he actually had a had a shot to, to qualify properly. And he didn't have a brilliant lap, but you know everything was against him in that. And then he had that decent run to sixth. Uh, they were behind the Stewarts, but the Stewarts, when things worked, were, were quick cars. So I think yeah, tempting as it is to to put it down to that, they still had a constructors' championship to fight for, and there was still, I guess, if a miracle happened, half a chance of him getting back into uh, some form of contention for the for the overall title. But I I don't think there's much evidence to say that was really a a kind of downtrodden, downbeat friends and just uh, just being knocked out of his operating window. I just think it was one of those weekends where things did not go well. Yeah, maybe we sort of everything reset to normal after that weekend because Frentzen was 12 points behind with 20 available from the final two races. But as we mentioned, Ferrari threw some bits at their car, brought forward some 2000 developments uh, to try and help Irvine at the end of the season. And maybe, as you've said, McLaren and Hakkinen got a bit of a wake-up call and got themselves back into gear because I think Frentzen was a, a sort of quiet fourth in Japan. And, uh, you know, that, that was where Jordan's... The, the peak for Jordan uh, was was over by this point. And Eddie Jordan says that the end of the 99 season was a bit of an anti-climax. And in his book, he says, yes, we finished third in the championship, but the fizz seemed to go out of that last race because we knew we could not win the title. Everyone was depressed, but we had no reason to be. Jordan was third. That was fantastic. We had done brilliantly for a team that had started less than 10 years previously. We had hauled ourselves up in a very short period of time from being no hopers to having a crack at the world title. In public at the time, he said, hopefully this is the year I remember as the one that gave us the confidence to make a serious breakthrough to take on the world championship. With 20 years of hindsight, we know that's, that's famous last words from Eddie there. And this was as good as it would get for Jordan. Do we think that the fact that he never scaled these heights again, was this... Did this prove that the team was punching above its weight in 1999? Or just, as I think we've hinted, that maybe the level of the top teams came down to Jordan and it created perhaps a false impression? It was, it's not so much punching above its weight as the the weight it had to punch at was kind of at Jordan's level, if, which is a very convoluted way of saying that. Um, I think that was one of the options I gave. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, the F1 was about to go manufacturer crazy. You know, the following year, BMWs turned up with Williams. Ford's coming in a big way with Jaguar. Okay, that was a disaster, but it shows the level of investment going on. Toyota was just around the corner. Honda was about to get really serious, um, but not with Jordan in the end, with BAR. So this was a year when there weren't enough really, really big, high-functioning teams to to fill the kind of top three or four in that sense with Williams and Benetton well into their declines by that point. So you could be a Jordan level team was a very competitive best of the rest. And if the, if the best were screwing up as much as McLaren and Ferrari were, then yeah. So that made it, that made it unique circumstances really where a team in Jordan's position could be there to pick up the pieces. I think Jordan perhaps overcomplicated after that in response and it ended up with quite a fragile 2000 car. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's, I hadn't seen that Jordan quote until until recently, and it's terribly sad now to think how optimistic that time felt. For you know, it was hard not to love Jordan at that point, as you know, I'd started working as a journalist by then. But if I had a soft spot for anything left, it was that Jordan friends and title run storyline. There was uh, quite a big effort being made by Eddie Jordan to try and kind of keep up with with everyone as as they expanded. Obviously, the Honda thing hadn't uh, hadn't come off, but they he'd sold forty percent of his stake in the team to, to an American company, Warburg Pinker at the end of 98 to get some investment to put into facilities and expanding the team etc I think probably what was underestimated is just how insane that manufacturer era then did start going because it was possible for a for a sensibly sized team to uh to to just invest sensibly and and compete with people but I think that combined with the fact that Jordan as you said Matt didn't quite build on it in the way they should have done uh they're a little bit erratic uh, for the next few years and that led to you know Eddie Jordan wasn't going to pour some of the money uh, too much of the money he'd made off the team into it and, and why should he you know he built up that team remarkably so it's only fair that he uh he he was able to benefit partly from it but the team just wasn't going to be able to to match the other ones without the uh without the manufacturer in, involvement so yeah it, in retrospect it was a perfect storm but i can see exactly as you said uh Matt, at the time Jordan probably thought, well, Jordan was was doing all the right moves to try and keep pace with that. But at that time, nobody foresaw that that twenty years down the line we'd be talking about teams of the size that we're talking about now. You know, these are enormous, monstrous teams. You know, Lewis Hamilton talks about a four figure number of people who are contributing all round to his uh, car and engine package, which is just absolutely crazy. Uh, they're not that ceased to become a racing team; it's an industrial organisation, uh, isn't it? So. I think probably through no fault of of the Jordan team and Eddie Jordan's own, really, I think the main mechanism was the explosion in Formula One, and perhaps it was a shame that he didn't uh, that the deal for for Honda to buy the team didn't didn't happen because it, it was very very possible that they could have bought Jordan uh, instead of uh, buying uh, BAR. I think their valuation. Uh, instead of uh, their valuation was was too low for Eddie Jordan, I think was the uh, ultimate uh, stumbling block for for that one. So, yeah, a big what if, but they, they enjoyed their ride while it lasted. And uh, to to his credit, Eddie Jordan got out the other side in a in a good position. Plenty of plenty of bankrupted themselves in Formula One, and why the hell should he after what he'd done? The the other thing about Jordan's title run was it was very much the end of an era and the end of a kind of hope that you could start out running a team in junior single seaters, be good at that, work your way up, get enough funding together and some clever designers to build a Grand Prix car and be genuinely competitive, rise up through F1 as well. And Jordan and Sauber, which had a slightly different route because of its Mercedes link, 
the, the fact that they're still around in slightly different forms, very different forms in some ways, but at the core, the same base, the same pe- some of the same people. Those two teams sh- gave such hope to other ambitious team owners at the time. But with all those manufacturers just kind of looming over the horizon at the start of the 2000s, it's been absolutely impossible for anybody from that background to break into Formula One and stick stick around since, let alone become a, a title contender. So it wasn't just the end of an era for a short era for Jordan. It was the end of an era for the, really the whole setup of, of F1. I think the point you made there, Matt, about the fact it's still around as, as Racing Point is is very important because although the team went through some awful times, obviously it became Midland, became Spike, then it became Force India and then clawed its way back up to being able to finish fourth in the Constructors' Championships a couple of times in recent years and then great hopes for what can happen, rebranding at Aston Martin next year, etc. And there's still a lot of that uh, that Jordan DNA in that team. There's still people, as you say, who are... Who same are, factory. Exactly, same factory. And, and in fact, the team in its current form is quite keen to kind of underline that heritage as well. That There is a straight line going all the way back to what Matt was talking about when uh, it was just Gary Anderson of, of the race, as it were. Was uh, he, he said many times he didn't think it was going to happen. He was told there was a factory turned up to the uh, the race shop at Silverstone, found there was nothing in it. So the first thing he had to do was kit it out. So it is that, I think that's probably why, that's why Jordan resonates so much as it is, it is the kind of defining underdog. Of, of that era and, and we should also say even though maybe things would have been different had honda brought it it doesn't necessarily mean that, that things would have gone brilliantly had that happened because manufacturers come and go salba was bought by bmw and and very close was very close to going out of business uh not so long ago as a result honda's works team ended up being rubbish as exactly well. yeah and the honda's the honda works team was rubbish and that almost stopped i mean as it happened it rose again as Braun and then currently as Mercedes but yeah there's no guarantees from uh from from this sort of thing so I think you have to when you look back at a team like that you have to have a look at what it what it what it was able to do and it was it was pretty improbable all things considered that it was so strong um to to finish third in the Constructors Championship with what amounts to a one-car team really because as Damon Hill will admit it was a season too far he wasn't able to contribute uh, a huge amount of points is a is a phenomenal achievement for a for a small team and we haven't really I don't think we've been able to see a small team do that since then and yeah so what if they capitalised on McLaren and Ferrari underachieving on the fact Williams was having a little interim spell between uh, Renault and, and BMW when it was uh, when it was struggling a little that's what they're they're there to do and all, all credit to them for for being able to to do that because so many of those teams that started at the same time late 80s early 90s 91 Jordan started fell by the wayside without doing anything uh, whatsoever so to go from where they started to a team that probably shouldn't have even got on the grid to do that yeah huge amount of credits deserved for that and we shouldn't I don't think we should look at what happened after as a as a kind of terrible decline and a failure to capitalize I think the world was absolutely against them yeah everybody else started to raise their game didn't they so BMW came in with Williams a couple of years later Benetton who, who were rubbish in 99 they were the works Renault team so yeah the F1 landscape changed around Jordan and I think it's a really good point that Eddie makes when he says that in less than a decade they achieved all of this. And you've only got to look at some of those other teams that were coming up. Even even years after Jordan, you know, who were the last couple of teams to properly step up from the junior ranks into F1? Would it be fair to say Pacific and 40? 
and they were both hopeless. Yeah, they were they were dreadful. They had Pacific and Forty. BAR was in was effectively a new start. They bought the Tyrrell entry and there was a little bit of carryover, but it was a but that was a big money uh, operation. And then you've got the later wave. The you could sort of argue that uh, what was the Virgin team, later Marussia, later Manor was sort of the Manor junior single-seater team, but it sort of wasn't the same people, but a, a new startup team. And then Haas recently, which is a totally, totally different uh, different model. Um, so, yeah, no one was able to do it. And Jordan was even able to, in its um, in its very late days, win that ridiculous 2003 Brazilian Grand Prix, we shouldn't forget as well, which is actually one of the worst cars to win a Grand Prix, you could, uh, you could argue. So it, it still had a touch of magic right to the end of its... Uh, of its years as Jordan, even getting even getting a podium in the last year when the Jordan name was on the chassis in the, in two thousand and five with Thiago Montero in the uh, U.S. Grand Prix, we shouldn't really mention. Oh, we will mention that race uh, in the future. We'll mention Brazil two thousand and three as well. But for now, talking about Jordan's heyday, we've come to an end, and we'll look back at some other great Jordan stories in the past. So that's the end of another episode of Bring Back V Tens. Remember to get in touch with us on social media uh, at We Are The Race. Let us know your thoughts and memories from this era and questions for us to take in our final episode. Those questions are starting to come in. Some of them are incredibly random and requiring a bit of research and uh, jogging our memory so we can answer them for you in the final episode. We'll be back next week when Indy 2005 will get a small mention, actually, because we'll be focusing on... Ferrari's disastrous 2005 season and how it all went wrong after those years of dominance for Michael Schumacher. Indy, of course, was the only victory that year, but because it's worth its own full episode in the future, we won't spend too long on a dark day for Formula One. But that's the subject next week, Ferrari and the 2005 disaster and everything that went wrong for Schumacher, Barrichello, Jean Todt, Ross Braun and everyone else who was there. And we look forward to joining you for an in-depth discussion about that next week.